snow and the sleet and blah, blah, blah. And even better than all that, we got a bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Which just, I know that doesn't mean nothing to you, but when you're in Saginaw for three or four hours, you got to, you know. So anyways, we got a bathroom, which we rejoice over anyways. And so now um, we had our clothing inside the house, which is something I never, ever want because my desire is to teach. I don't believe that, but it really is. And I got to do one class already. And uh, and I do the little ones. And uh, it's a four-week class. And I, I, I looked all over for curriculum. And one day, God just gave it to me. I stole it from pastor that you belong and you're loved and you're special. So I teach them creation and I teach them that how much they're loved by Christ and that he's got such a purpose and a plan for their lives. And in my first class, I had 11. I ended with seven. But I had seven little kids give their heart to Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. That's what we're about. Yeah. That's what five years of, of being friends with these people and getting involved in their lives. And, and, you know, we're not just throwing a lunch at them. We're involved, in the, and God is moving. And so now we, I need a bigger classroom, so we're kicking all the clothing out. And uh, God just gave us this uh, shed. We looked all over, and we were going to – my husband was going to build it, and, you know, Tom does – Tom does everything. He, he just does everything, a little of everything, you know, from unplugging the toilet to whatever a little kid's got, you know, problems. And, and so I really fretted over that. Anyways, we found a place in Clare, and uh, it was actually less money for us to pay the Amish, who have already built these sheds, to come and just do it for us. It was cheaper for us. We didn't have to get any people together. They came, and in seven hours, they had this thing built. It was amazing. It was just amazing. So the last three weeks, we've been putting together what we're calling the store. Now, everything is free in the store, but we're calling it a store. And so now tomorrow will be our grand opening of being able to expand and to um, allow them to shop for clothing and, and everything. And and I got to say, we just got nice stuff. We really do. And uh, all the people that came and helped us, even from here, I just want to say thank you. It has been 90 to 100 degrees, very hot, on every day that we sorted. Praise Jesus. <laughs> we had a lot of fans, but it didn't really do a lot. But anyways, God took us from the back of our Suburban. Right. Hallelujah. <laughs> to a piece of property, to a little shed, six by six or eight by eight, whatever, little shed, and now to a house, and now we got a barn where we can even do more for the people. So Monday, we have our grand opening at 12 o'clock, and then I also start a new class on Monday, so I'll have a whole new crop of children. So pray for them. Pray for them. 730 South 14th Street, and uh, we're on the east side. Um, you better be prayed up, you know. We got angels all around. We never had any problems, and we're not going to have any problems, you know. 
it's kind of, I just want to share this one story, but across the road, they have, uh, at the at the Emea's house, they have a uh, store there. And you know, they're forever having to call the police because they're fighting, and they, it's just pathetic. And I'm thinking, there ain't no way. What is going to stop us? Uh-uh. It ain't happening here in the name of Jesus. So, you know, just pray. We have our grand opening tomorrow. I start my new class tomorrow. So we got a lot going on. And then this fall, I won't be able to do classes because my kids will be in school. So Sharon is going to be coming and taking our adult, our adult women and mentoring them, um, you know, each month. So that's a blessing, too, because, you know, they're asking me, hey, Mona, you're doing classes for them. What about us? What about us? Well, you know what? Get hungry enough and maybe, you know. So anyways, we're going to be pushing that for the next month, and she'll start that in September. But, you know, I just want to thank you. You know, the church gives to so all of this you're part of, you know. But many of you give to us monthly, you know, on your own, and you, you sacrifice even that much more. I just want to say thank you because we truly can't do it without you. And, and we always need volunteers. If you ever want to come down, you can put an hour in or whatever. We always need people. And right now we even need more people um, because we're opening our store and we'll be open 12 to 4, which gives us a whole lot more time down there that we got. We need help. We, we just need help. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Pastor, for for letting me speak. Amen. Not Tom. <laughs> Tom. Okay. You got it? All right. Okay. Awesome, man. That's tremendous. Um, you know, when you go down, if you've never been there, just so you kind of know the experience, you'll see flowers and balloons on corners. When you watch, if you watch WNEM, You'll hear about shootings. They usually happen within a 10-block radius of where she's at, where people are killed. And, I mean, it just, it's, it's unfortunate. But how are people going to get reached if we stay away, right? How are, we, how are they going to get reached? And I can remember when, we first, when she first started out, we had a little more time we could be involved in, and we'd go door to door. And, you know, that's quite an endeavor in and of itself. Because you don't know what you're going to run into door to door. And, uh, you know, on, those, on the streets there. Uh, but people were gracious and loving and accepting. And uh, this, is a, this is a real deal. So, you know, this is one of our major missional efforts that we believe in. And in Saginaw, um, only a few churches have wanted to get involved. And so we were a little shocked at that. But you know what? That's okay because we can't complain about who's not doing it, doing things. We need to rejoice at who is. Amen. And uh, and so we are. Also, I wanted to mention to you um, and uh, about our Spanish church. This week, they're baptizing how many? Uh, uh, two people this coming week on Tuesday night. Um, on uh, and so the church continues to grow and salvations are happening and people are getting baptized. That's always good. Amen. And uh, so that's happening Tuesday night and then. The following week, they're doing a potluck at the park, and uh, so because it's a Spanish church, we have Hondurans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans. I would say the food is going to be amazing, <laughs> amen. <laughs> so uh, it would be worth your time to come check it out, bring some food, and to be able to serve if you have a 
If you have a nationality like you're German or Irish or Polish or whatever, uh, or not, or you're a Heinz 57, just bring whatever and, uh, you know, or do like Mona does and just stop by Myers and get whatever they got out for sale. So. <laughs> The 31st at 6.30 at the park, right. So that's happening. Then we're going to let you know, too, that on August the 12th, we're going to be doing water baptisms here. Um, one of the young ladies that gave her life to Christ, actually, in one of our services, uh, she's been out, and Chuck ran into her the other day, and she says, I've had a real experience with God. You know, we don't just pray that people get saved. We pray that Christ is formed in them. And uh, so, you know, our prayer every week, actually, we've prayed every week. You know, we've had something like 34 people come to Christ this year just in church. And uh, so we pray, uh, according to Galatians, Paul said, we travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. And uh, so this young lady, she came to Chuck and she said, I've had a real experience with the Lord and I want to be water baptized. Would you guys be willing to do that at the church? Uh, and Chuck said, well, let me pray about it. And uh, no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> So anyways, we're going to be doing that on the 12th here at the church. And uh, so if you would like to be water baptized, and I encourage you, if you have not been water baptized, to do that that morning. And uh, if you want information about it, you can talk to Chuck. And uh, he was the worship leader up here, and uh, he can get you more information about that. Amen? All right. Do you have your Bibles? I want you to open them up. And uh, I hope you'll... I hope you'll bring your Bible to church, and I know sometimes we have our, our electronic, and that's great. It's hard to underline stuff in an electronic Bible, though. You know, it, it is a little difficult, and uh, today I'm going to have you in the two passages that we're going to look at in Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, three different things I want you to underline in the two verses, and uh, then we're going to really dig into this on, in the book of Ephesians. This is part of our basic training series, and uh, Ephesians is considered to be one of the most comprehensive books in all the New Testament. Most scholars look at the book of Ephesians that it deals with everything. It deals with identity. It deals with who God is. It deals with everything in between marriage and children, and it deals with so many different things. We're going to be in chapter 1. So, um, if you, uh, so it, I hope you'll be able to join us for all of this series. I'm going to go verse by verse through this uh, as the Lord leads. We'll have a few breaks in there. Uh, I'm taking a group to... Uh, Columbia, Bogota, Colombia, here in August, and uh, so there are six others that are going with me, and uh, we're going down there to preach and to minister in Pastor John Romick's church, and uh, so I'll be gone the one week, but Sharon's going to be preaching, and uh, so you'll get a chance to hear from her, and uh, of course she does a great job, as well as all of our team does. Um, but uh, So Ephesians, have you found chapter 1 yet? Verse 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three things I want you to underline in this, uh, if you would. In verse 1, it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, by the will of God, the second thing I want you to under, underline is the last part of the verse where it says, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, I want you to underline the words, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. 
Ephesus was a uh, city that Paul had ended up in to preach the, to, as he was tra- traveling through Asia, and he ended up in Ephesus. And as he's preaching in Ephesus, uh, he runs into, uh, according to, at, this is Acts chapter 19, so if you want to do a little bit of a parallel with this, in Acts chapter 19, he runs into a group of, of Jews that are there who have heard about Christ, but have not really stepped into the full experience of who Christ is because nobody's taught them. They believe that the Messiah has come, but nobody really understands what we're supposed to do with that. And so Paul begins to talk with these folks while he's there in Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus is a very wealthy area. It was a port city, and so all of the Roman Empire ran through Ephesus. So it had a lot of wealth, and it had a, a, a lot of business and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of shipping things. But with that, it also had a lot of religions from every different country. It was so full. I mean, there was all kinds of philosophy, all kinds of religions that were there in the city. Most of them were pagan. There were some Jews there that had become believers, and there were some Jews there that refused the message of the Messiah. But there were, there were so many pagan people there. They worshipped, and you can read this in Acts 19 on your own, but they worshipped uh, at a temple called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Um, and they had there what they believed was an idol that Jupiter uh, the, or Zeus in the, in the, I think that's in the Greek, right? Zeus, that, they, that had sent down from heaven, which was just a meteor. And so they were very, very superstitious people, a lot of witchcraft, a lot of new age, what we would consider today be new age stuff uh, that was all combined together. New age is a combination of just like everything goes, anything goes. Um, you know, with that, because there were so many different religions that were there, I mean, people just believed whatever they wanted to believe. And then here comes Paul into the city, into this totally, really a very, very pagan environment, and he begins to talk to them about Jesus. And so God supernaturally opened the door that he ended up dealing with these Jews who were looking for answers about the scripture. And he finds them and he begins to talk with them and ask them how they came to believe. And they said, well, we heard about it, uh, but we don't really know. We heard about John, uh, you know, John the Baptist, but we don't, really don't understand all of it. Can you help us? And so Jesus, or, or uh, Paul begins to talk to them about being, believing in Jesus Christ and being baptized. So here's what happens. These, these Jews, they believe in Christ. They make a public confession of Christ. They get water baptized. And as soon as they get water baptized, they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes on. Paul lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and they begin to speak in other tongues. This is all in Acts chapter 19. So all these people, and then a big fuss starts over this. The Jews get upset because Paul's reaching out to the Jews. So he kicks, they kick him basically out of their area so that he has to go to the school of a guy named Tyrannus, And Tyrannus has a a small classroom. And so Paul gathers in there with this group of people for three months, and he begins to teach them uh, about Christ and just begins to walk them through understanding about the work of Christ and how it all applies. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he came to Christ, so he had a complete understanding of how the, the, the Jewish faith moved into the New Testament gospel, and so he did a, a very good explanation helping them to understand. He did that for three months, okay? And uh, so as time is going on, a couple of the disciples that are in 
that are in the group, they get really on fire for God. People are getting saved, and so they get psyched about God. I mean, they're just so excited about Jesus, and they realize that their lives are so polluted with paganism that they make a decision that they're going to take everything that they own that's pagan, and they're going to put it in a pile, and they're going to burn it in the street. And so that's what they do. They bring all their curious arts, you know, all their tarot cards, all their witchcraft symbols, all their stuff that's taking, that they believed was just totally pagan, did not have anything, you know, all their new age junk. They bring it out, put it in a pile, and it, they estimated that this pile of stuff that all these people brought out was worth between $8,500 to $22,000. You can't, it's hard to estimate exactly how much because, you know, of the currencies and the changes over time, and there was silver that was involved in some of these pagan things. So they burn, they burn their idols, they burn all this stuff, and, 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 and you know, the, the first thought that comes to us is like, well, why didn't they resell it, right? Why didn't they resell that stuff? Because they could have sold it and then used the money to help the poor, but you know, when you sell bad stuff to bad people, you're helping bad people be bad. Okay? So there's no selling that's going to happen here. They, now, look, I, I'm, I'm not picking at your life. I'm just telling you what they did. So they put a pile out there, and they burned this $8,500 worth of paraphernalia. Okay? Now, this causes a major problem because in the city... There are people that are making money and profiting off of the worship of this in the temple of Diana. They make these silver images, you know. And so this whole thing is disrupted. They, they, they're frustrated. And a silversmith in the city, he begins to cause problems. And so he starts making a big deal about this. And he starts saying, look, these guys have come to take our money from us. We need to stop all of this. We need to stop them. Well, a couple of the disciples were out sharing the gospel, some of the people that Paul was helping, and they're sharing the gospel, and this guy causes a huge ruckus to take place, and it ends up that they end up in this big theater area that's there in Ephesus, and when they end up in there, it, it gets totally out of control. I mean, it actually, it, it's just so bizarre what happens because everybody's screaming. I want you to look at this with me. Just put a finger in Ephesians. Go to Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, and, and, uh, and as you um, look at verse 32. So they're in this theater, and uh, all of a sudden, verse 32, and it says, and some therefore, Acts 19.32, I hear pages turn, I want you to see this. Some therefore cried one thing, and some cried another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they had come together. Sounds like some of these political things that are going on in our country right now. People are yelling stuff, but they don't even know what they're yelling about. They don't know what they're even talking about. Thank you for your enthusiasm. So what happens is, is that this whole thing is turning into an incredibly crazy thing. And then one of the, one of the men steps in and, uh, that, and basically says, look, we're violating Roman law by doing this. We need to stop doing it. They let him go. And then after all of this happens, Paul leaves. Now, Paul is gone. He's, he's been there now for about three years and eight months by this time. And then he's going to leave and move on to Macedonia. And 
it's interesting because he doesn't write the book of a, the letter of Ephesians until almost eight years after he's been there. Okay, so the church has been growing for eight years since he's been there. Now he's considered the apostle that helped found that church and what he's taught them. But it's been about eight years, and now he's going to write the book of Ephesians. So the way he starts his letter out, and that, now we've kind of got the history of where this is all at. So we're talking about a wealthy area. We're talking about a very religious, pagan area uh, with some Jews that are within it, and then these Christians that uh, came to Christ and then were water baptized and then were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul comes in verse 1 and he says to them, Look, I am Paul and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle just so you kind of understand how that plays out. Um, the, the word apostle is actually a Greek word. It's apostolos. And an, an apostle, this was out of the way that the Greeks would conquer cities. And it's interesting that Jesus used this. When the Greeks, you know, under Alexander, you remember what a, he went in and conquered, you know, all of Asia. And uh, when he would go into a city, he would bring his amassed army, you know, bigger than anybody else's army. I mean, it was huge. They had horses and weaponry, and he would amass it out on the, on the outskirts of the city. And when they would put it together, then he would send one of his guys, which he called the apostolos. And the apostle would go to the city, knock on the gate, and he'd say, I'd like to talk to the leaders of the city. And so what he would do is, is that he would meet with the leaders of the city, and he would lay down the terms that Alexander had. He said, now, you have two options. One option, option A is that you can fight with us, we'll win, nobody's beat us, and you'll all be dead. And we're going to take the city anyways. And we'll take your women and your children, okay? Option B, you surrender to us right now. You surrender to us. You pay taxes to us. You let us put our government over top of you, but you can continue to conduct your affairs, do your business, and you get to live. Most of the cities took option B because Alexander's reputation was, was massive. Um, so they, took the, they, they, they would go in and basically they would set their own government in the city. They would set their own law in the city. They, would set, they set the terms of how that city and then the city would give back to them and they would let them live and, and have peace. It's interesting that Jesus, when he decided to take his disciples and to get them ready to be sent ones, which that's what apostolos means, to be sent, that he used that term, a Greek term, to call his disciples that he would make apostles. And he called them his sent ones because what they do is they go into cities and they declare the terms of God. See, apostles go into an environment that is very challenging, very difficult, and when they go in, they deal with, now we're talking about any, you know, Paul was not an apostle of the Lamb. There were only 12 of those, okay? So Paul is this, Paul is an apostle, but he's not considered one of the apostles of the Lamb. He didn't travel with Jesus. He wasn't, the, you know, he wasn't part of the team at that point. But as an apostle, Paul knew when you go into a city, you're establishing the terms of why you're there. And you're there to proclaim the gospel and to establish, watch this now, the kingdom of your God. Now, we don't go into cities as apostles and say, and if you don't do what we say, you're going to die because we already know the way they're living is leading to death. But we tell them, this is the way, walk ye in it. 
This is the way, follow the light. This is the way, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as an apostle, that's what they do. So they go into difficult places. So Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. I came in there. I established with you the terms. Remember, they didn't have a clue as to what to believe, how to believe, what's, what's the deal, what's the kingdom about. They just knew about Jesus. They, knew the, they had heard the Messiah had come. Paul came in and established the terms of God with the people in that city as an apostle. Do we have apostles today? Absolutely, we have apostles today. Grady and Becky Pickett are apostles in Iraq. They go in. They came into an environment that was war-torn and destroyed, and they established not just a nice, goodwill environment of helping people. They established in that city as a sent one, in the area they're in, as a sent one, the kingdom of God. Amen. They shared with the people the good news of the gospel. People believed in the gospel. People received the gospel. You know, in a sense, even though Mona is not called what we would consider a five-fold minister, she's an apostle to Saginaw. God sent her to, thir- she's a 13th Street apostle. 14th, excuse me. Huh? She's a 14th Street apostle because God sent her. This wasn't a thing like she just figured this out. God sent her there, okay? She didn't put her finger on a map and say, where do I go? God sent her there, told her where to go, through another person that she ran into thinking that's where she was supposed to go. So it's a pretty powerful story. We don't have time to get into all that. So Paul said, look, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Aren't you surprised there's that much in just the first five words? Um, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Point one, will of God. Well, my time's almost gone. You know, the will of God is an interesting thing. Because for many, the will of God is subjective. The will of God is subjective. And I'll explain what that means in just, a, in just a minute. Just like for many, truth is subjective. means that we take what we think the truth says and make it our own. Or we take what we think God's will is and make it our own. And, you know, you can, you can see two... I'll give you an example. You can meet a person in the church, even in this church, who would say, man, I'm telling you, I am going through hell right now. I am in a battle. This thing is so bad. It is so horrible. The devil is fighting me at every turn. I must be in the will of God. Sitting right next to them can be a person that would say, I am so blessed. Things are absolutely incredible. Money's coming in. Good things are happening to me. Doors are opening. It's just the most powerful time of my life. I absolutely believe I am in the will of God. Which is right. You cannot base the will of God off your circumstances. That's when you make it subjective. See, when you and I, when we say, well, I'm in the will of God because of this, we're pointing to some circumstantial evidence, that's wrong. I was sharing with someone the other day, uh, they were said, you know, well, if every, I've kind of put a fleece out, and always be careful about fleeces because you usually get fleeced. And, uh, but they said, I'm putting a fleece out. This is something that Gideon did in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, remember, Gideon didn't have the Spirit of God. You're led by the Spirit, not by the fleece. Thank you, Pastor. Amen. So he said, I'm putting a fleece out. And if they want me to be the pastor of this church, I just believe that everybody will agree to it on the board. There'll be totally peace and agreement on the board. 
And so I said, okay, well, let me tell you a story. Kenneth Hagin, any of you, some of you Raymond grads have probably heard this. Kenneth Hagin was going to pastor at this, I believe it was a Baptist church. He had asked the Lord, he said, Lord, if you want me to be the pastor of this church, I want you to, that the whole board, the deacon board, will have 100% agreement. Now, they had never agreed on anything, anything. He said, so I want them to have 100% agreement that I'm to be the next pastor. And guess what? There was 100% agreement. He told after that that he knew he had totally missed God. He had blown it. He said it was the worst environment he'd ever been in. Deacons would be in fistfights after church on the front steps of the church. I mean, could you imagine being in this church and Joe and Ken are beating each other up in the parking lot afterwards? <laughs> At least in our church, even though they might want to do that, they don't do it, okay? So, I mean, but, the, but these guys were, they were violent and they were, they were, I don't know how much salvation was there. I mean, they were out of control. Brother Hagin said that this was the worst nightmare of his life. And he says, I'll never put a fleece before God again because doing that got me in the worst situation. We're led by the Spirit. See, when you and I, when we take the will of God and we say that, well, I'm in the will of God because of this, that's subjective. That means you are now subjecting. It's just like people do with truth. We live a way and then we live a certain way and then we say, God condones it, or God is okay with it, and then we take the Scripture to try to verify what He has said. That's you and I making the truth subjective to our lives. The truth is the truth without your life. The truth is the truth whether you agree to it or not. So whenever we try to take the truth, you know, I've heard people say, I've heard people say stuff, you know, they've come to me and said, well, Pastor, and, and I did this, Pastor, I prayed. I mean, I prayed. I prayed to God that he'd take alcoholism away from me. I prayed. I mean, anybody that's really battled alcohol, you know, you, you get some times where you're just like, oh, God, oh, God, I, I, take, take the, I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to. So you, you get burdened down by it. And uh, I've actually had people say, but God didn't take it away. Now, watch this. God didn't take it away. So that must mean he's OK with it. No. You think I'm making this up? I'm not making this up. But see, that's subjective. That's you and I taking truth and making it subjective to our life. You don't, we don't get to do that. We don't get to, that's not our place. The truth is what will make us free, not the truth subjected to whatever we think it should be subjected to. The will of God is also, in our lives, can become subjective, where we take the will of God and we somehow lay it down over top, something in our life, and say, well, this is God's will. There's a whole movement right now that happens in America, and it came out of determinism, pretty much, which is a, re a religious form of uh, the gospel, um, and determinism talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, does God have a sovereign will? Absolutely. In fact, I'll tell you what, God is sovereign. It, it, you experience the sovereignty of God in your life today. And when I say the sovereignty of God, I'm saying that it doesn't matter what you think or what you do, it's going to happen because God said it. You know what it was? It happened at 6.05 this morning. That's right. The sun came up. Well, the earth rotated so that the sun came up, right? And guess what? A little bit later today, it'll go down and it'll get dark again. You'll see the stars in the heaven. And that, my friend, 
is absolutely the will of God. That is only happening because of God's sovereign will. Because God established it. So it doesn't matter. You can get up tomorrow. I don't, look, you can say, I just don't believe. I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't believe the sun. It has, it has nothing to do with you. You can declare it. You can preach it. You can say it's not going to happen. But the danger is, is when we take the sovereign things of God that have everything to do with God and nothing to do with us, and we try to move them into the moral will of God. See, the sovereign will of God is the predicted will of God. That means in his mindset when he says something that has to do with him. For example, he said the Messiah is coming. Right? Now look, it, mankind, mankind could fight and fuss with that. I mean, in all kinds of levels. But he made a declaration that the, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of would crush the, the serpent. He made that prediction in Genesis 3:15. So all of these things that God has predicted and said are going to happen, that is his sovereign will. Predictive things. While the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest, right? So all around my house, man, I got walls of cornfields around me. That is only happening not because of the seed company thinks they're so smart they've developed a, a seed that's absolutely incredible. It's because God's word has said that if you plant it, it will grow. Into, I love it, man. And what a powerful thing. Now, look, all I got to do is just plant it. That's all my part is to it and, and to take care of the ground that's around it. The rest of it is the will of God. Everybody say amen. amen. And thank God for it. So there are all kinds of things that we deal with in our life. I'm not going to get into all those out in the sovereign. But see, what we tend to do is then we start moving things like sovereign will into things that like salvation and into sovereign will into things like healing and into prosperity and into deliverance. And so we start thinking that they somehow are God's sovereign will. And so you have people that say, well, I wasn't healed at the altar, so that must be God's will that I not be healed because I didn't get it. Well, first of all, even though the Word declares to you and I, God's moral, those moral passages, those things of His, we say moral, we talk about His operating system, His philosophy of, of how He conducts Himself, that you and I, that when we look at God's moral will, we see things like healing, salvation, which now has to do with you and I, because we have to choose to receive the moral will of God into our lives. For example, Paul, even though he's saying that by the will of God am I an apostle, we all know that even though God may have knocked him off his donkey onto the ground, and even though he may not have been able to see, he still had to make the choice to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't like saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God. I did not want to do this. I still don't want to do this. I hate what I do. I'm suffering, I'm going through difficulty, I'm starving. I mean, you read some of his story. I'm in cold, I'm in heat, I'm in prison, I'm in, I mean, I've been through it all, folks. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. I mean, it's bad, it's been terrible, and I hate every minute of it, and I don't want to do it, but God's making me do this. That's a lie. See, when we try to take that and make that moral will of God, which, when we use the word moral, we could put the word principled. We could call it the principled will of God. The principled will of God is when, when God says, look, here's a great example. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 7. You write this one down. John 15, 7. 
Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. Now, lots of believer Christians read that passage and go, I can ask what I want and it will be done for me. No, it, no, it won't. Because you miss the beef. You miss the most important part of it. And that's if you abide in him and his word abides in you. So that's the principled will of God. Even though it's condi- it's, there's a condition to it. This is how God feels about it. But how do you feel about it? You know, the Bible says, Matthew 8, 17, he himself bore our sicknesses and carried away our diseases. He already figured out what he believes. Now he's saying to you, what do you believe? What is my moral principled will over your life? So that's all the stuff you're reading in Scripture that you do have a part to play in. Well, this is really good, Pastor. Thank you. That's what Paul experienced was the moral principled will of God. He had to make a choice. When he made that choice, he decided that, yeah, I'll, be in a, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I surrender. I give up. You're real. This stuff I believed is not real. So there is the sovereign will of God, the moral will of God. And then the last one is number three, and that's the individual will of God. Now, let me just tell you this. If you're following one and two, you'll definitely experience number three the individual will of God, and that's the provisional will of God. That's how he's guiding you. You know, Paul, people have asked me before, Pastor, how do I know the will of God? How do I know the will of God? Well, one, just make sure you're doing what the Scripture says first, and then the will of God will happen in your life. Oh, man, that's excellent. Good point. Yeah, because see, if you're not doing the provisional will of, the, excuse me, if you're not doing the principled will of God, you can't expect to follow into the provisional will of God, where he's guiding you, telling you what you need to do next. My feeling is, is that when you and I, when we just surrender to the will of God and his word, the, the principled will of God, then, and we have nothing to do with the sovereign will of God, that's all on him. When we give into that principled will of God, if we will surrender to that and be in faith in that, we will find that we are working in allegiance with the guiding of the Holy Spirit. It's when we're resisting the scriptures in our lives that now we're not experiencing the individual or what I would call the, the personalized or the, um, the provisional will of God. Does that make sense to everybody? So see, God wants to lead you. So here's Paul, you know, he's going along, and God says, go down to Macedonia. Philip, man, what a great story that is. You know, Philip, he's going along, Acts chapter 8, Man, he's having a revival in Samaria. I mean, this place has gone berserk. People are getting saved. Demons are being cast out. Healings are happening everywhere. The city's all turned to God. There's great joy in the city. And God says, go down this way to this certain place. And while he's, on his, while he's, while he's going onto this certain place, the Spirit has led him to go. He meets one man, an Ethiopian, on the side of the road, whose chariot, he was sitting there thinking about what it is the scriptures are all about. He's trying to come to an understanding. You know, if you understand about Solomon and his effect on Ethiopia through the Queen of Sheba, how that the Ethiopians had a respect and a favor towards the the Jewish faith and also looking for the Messiah. And so here, here he is. He's sitting by the side of the road. He's praying, asking for somebody to come and help him. God sends him Philip. 
And there's Philip and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to figure out what this passage means. And Philip says, well, let me explain it to you. And then he says to the guy, and so all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And then the guy says, well, what do I got to do? And he says, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I believe. He says, then be baptized, goes down to the water, gets baptized. And immediately, just like that, Philip comes up out of the water and God translates him several miles away to a different place. Like he just supernaturally went from one place to another place. All right. Now, how do you know you're in the will of God? One, because you're following the principled will of God. If you violate the principled will of God, you're going to struggle with ever figuring out the individual will of God. Look, that was worth your money right there. So, Paul said, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I had you underline that word, in those words, in Christ Jesus, because this is the theme of this book. That's why we talk about identity in here. 27 times he uses this phrase in the book of Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ or in him, 27 different times. And here's the really powerful, here's the really powerful thing. I'm going to have to read this to you, but this is a quote that John MacArthur gave. This was outstanding. You ready for this? If you are in Christ, how many of you are in Christ? Okay, if you are in Christ, then Christ's riches are your riches. His resources are your resources. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. His position, I wish I was getting more amens here. His position is our position. Where he is, we are. What he has, we have. Glory to God. See, it's more than just a phrase of in Christ. Well, you know, that's nice. I'm in Christ. Woo. Oh, Jesus said, if you're in me and my word's in you, then here's what's going to happen. You'll ask whatever you will and it'll be done for you. Because I'm in you and you're in me and you're walking in my principled will. Therefore, I will do what you ask. Because you would never ask for anything contrary to his principled will. That's why whenever, you know, that's when the two sons, you know, here, here, John and James, you know, they're, they're going along. They're called the sons of thunder, man. They're wildcats. These guys, they're just like, hey, those people rejected what you said. We got a thought, Jesus. Let's call fire from heaven and burn the snot out of them in the road. That'll teach them. Huh? That'll learn them. Come on, let's do it. And Jesus said, guys, whoa, you don't know what spirit you are. You don't know who you are. You've forgotten who you are. See, they're thinking they're in Christ. They're thinking they got somehow Christ in them. But the truth is, is that they had a lot of themselves and their own anger and their own frustration. And that's what came out whenever they saw Jesus rejected. Notice that it wasn't Jesus that said, he who doesn't listen to me is going to get burned by fire from heaven. And aren't you glad? He said, you guys don't know what spirit. So being in Christ, and we'll look at this more as we go through, but 27 times this is here. So by the will of God, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is that, why is that important? Because we say Lord Jesus Christ all the time. I mean, we use it in the church. We sing it in songs. We make declarations and confessions of it. Why is that important? Because where he's writing this to in Ephesus... The only one you're allowed to call Lord is Caesar. 
You're, he's it. See, in Roman understanding, the emperor was God. And so he is Lord. And he is to be worshipped. He's to be venerated. He is to be honored. He is, he is infallible. He is God Almighty. He is God's representation. He is God to us. He is our Caesar. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's our, he's our everything. And so when Paul writes to these folks and he says to them, the name in the name of the Lord. See, saying into the, the Father God, that would have passed. That would have been okay. Because we really, you know, by saying Father, we're not locating exactly what it is, who the Father is there. But when you put Lord Jesus, or Lord Christ Jesus, it should be, because Christ is not Jesus' last name. Lord Messiah Jesus. The penalty for doing that, Gary, was death. Meaning that if you said, Jesus is Lord, you die for that purpose. Now, I know in our world today, all kinds of people say Jesus. Some of us have even prayed at the altar and said, I asked Jesus into my life, but there's a difference between that I believe in Jesus and He is Lord Jesus of my life. See, Lord, throwing the word Lord on this means that He's in charge. That He, the word, we, we don't use the word Lord in our society too much unless you're in England, but, uh, or over in Europe somewhere, but we would use the word Master. Master. And when we say that word master, we're not talking in a slavery sense. We're talking in the sense of, look, he is in charge. My life is not just... See, if you read Romans 10, 9 and 10, and we won't look there, but you can write this one down if you want to. It says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved to the glory of God the Father. So it's not just that, well, I believe that. I believe that. See, this is what I struggled with in my Christian faith. Nobody really ever told me that. I thought it was just that we had to believe. You know, we go to church, we do all the believer stuff, you know, sing the songs, giving the offering, hear the message, be nice to people. I mean, I, I just thought that's what it was really all about. I never thought that I had to do more than that. I mean, you know, it's like what Dave Williams talked about last week. Remember this? Orthodoxy, which is great teaching, which is bright teaching, but you have orthopraxy, which is right living. I never thought I had to change my lifestyle for crying out loud. I used to drink with the same people Saturday night I went to church with on Sunday morning and never thought anything was wrong with it. And then all of a sudden, one day, I'm confronted with the idea that Jesus is not Lord of my life. That he's not. He's not in charge of my life. I haven't surrendered. See, when Jesus is Lord of your life, it's not just about something you do on Sunday morning. It affects, influences, and deals with every single aspect of your life. Jesus affects how I deal with my children. Jesus affects how I deal with my wife. Jesus affects how I deal with my money. Jesus affects how I deal with um, relationships. Jesus affects, and it bugs me sometimes, but Jesus affects the way I drive my vehicle. Can I get a good amen? amen? See, it influences everything. See, somebody talks bad about me. Jesus affects how I respond to that. 
I'm not going to tell you I don't want to call fire down from heaven. And I know some of you might try to on Facebook, but it influences every. See, that's what Paul is trying to say to you guys, to these folks. He's saying, look, it's time to, we're all in this, folks. The, our lives are of no value without Christ. I mean, there's, because first of all, there's an eternity that we're a part of. Regard, everybody's a part of it. Every person here, saved and unsaved, believer in Christ and not a believer in Christ, is a part of eternity. Because you're going to spend your eternity somewhere. And he's saying, look, you're going to have to, you have to realize that you're not annihilated, you don't disappear, you'll spend your eternity somewhere, and so make it with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is more than just that, well, I believe in Jesus, I mean... I, me and Jesus, we're buds, we're best friends. Jesus is the man upstairs. I believe, I go to church. Look, all of that's great. And I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not trying to hammer at your faith, okay, and say that you're not a good Christian. I'm not doing that. Probably the greatest story I ever saw with this, that this really, it really, it really, this orthopraxy and the, ortho, the orthodoxy was Johnny Cash. And if you ever saw the movie Walk the Line, I mean, in Walk the Line, Johnny Cash is singing a gospel song, and they're all in the room, and his little group that he had, and he's singing a gospel song, and he goes through the whole thing, and he's thinking, you know, this guy, he's got to be liking my song. He's, a, you know, the recording studio. And he gets done, and Cash says to the guy, well, what did you think? He said, well, it was okay. Do you have anything else? And he said, what do you mean do I have anything? He got mad. He said, what do you mean do I have anything else? He said, well, you know, uh, I'm just not feeling, I'm, it's, I just don't believe you. And Johnny Cash goes, what are you saying, I'm not a good Christian? He said, no, I didn't say you're not a good Christian. He says, I don't believe you believe the song you're singing. I know you're singing it, I hear the words, but I don't have any belief in what you're saying. And Cash goes, what do you mean by saying that to me? How dare you? And the guy said, let me, let me give you an illustration. He said, look, you're going down the road in a car. The car goes out of control, goes into a ditch, crashes. You go flying out of the car. You're laying in the ditch, and you're dying, and you know you're dying, and you know that your only hope is in heaven. Now, he said, let me ask you a question. If that was, could be your last song that you ever sang in your life, if that could be the last thing that you said before you took your last breath here on this earth, is that the song that you would want to be singing right there and the way you're singing it? And you know what Johnny Cash realized at that moment? He didn't believe in what he was singing. And you know, we do that same thing in church week after week. We sing stuff we don't really believe. I mean, we're singing it. We believe it, I mean. But it's not orthopraxy. It's not part of our life. There's no passion to it. We're just doing it. You know, we're just going through it. And I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking about our daily devotions. I'm talking about, I mean, do you really believe when you sit down with your Bible that Jesus sits down with you by the Holy Spirit and teaches you? Then how can you dare stay away from doing that? How could we do that? Do you believe that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? How could you reject Christ in your life? when he so readily makes himself available to you. Someone one time said, how could a good God send anyone to hell? And the question back was, how could anyone, knowing that there's a good God, want to go to hell? 
want to go to hell. See, in your life, maybe you're like Johnny Cash. Maybe this morning that's kind of your moment. Are you all in? See, Jesus is Lord. We, we make that statement in our society. It don't mean too much. But in their society, it meant that you just laid your life. You just crossed the line. When you crossed that line, you said, I'm all in. It's all about Jesus. I'm in this for Christ. Christ is my, he's going to influence, affect every part of my life. I totally surrender to him. And I'm going to not only, I'm not only going to believe in him, I'm going to live like I believe in him. You know, two things the world wants to know from the church. Hadn't hit, we haven't done a real good job of this yet. But two things we got to be able to teach. We got to be able to show. You ready for them? Here they are. They want to know, is what you believe, is it real? Meaning, is it real to you? And two, does it work? That's all they want to know. Is it real? Religion is not real. Religion is not real. You know, when the communist said that religion is the opiate of the people, he was absolutely right. Because religion is not real. Religion is not real relationship with a real God and a real walk with Him and a real experience with God who's transforming and changing your life. It's just religion. It's just a bunch of beliefs that we have that try to help us endure to the end. True faith in Christ means Jesus is in this. It's what God's been trying to say this to us all service, that He's in this with us. Stop saying it's me against the world. It's not me against the world. It's Jesus and me against the world. We're against the world. We're against all of it. It's not about me. Christ lives in me. And I'm in Christ. And that is the hope of glory. That is the hope of all the expression of who God is, what God has, and what God is willing to do. So I want to make an offer to you today. Cross the line. Cross the line. Walk across. Ask yourself the question, am I at a place in my life right now where I would say if my life, you know, it's like the little Chinese girl, you know, it's such a sad story, but, but it's so true. They're in line. They're telling, you have to spit on the picture of Jesus. The communists were. You have to spit on the picture of Jesus or we're going to shoot you right here. And one by one, people from her church walked up and spit on the picture of Jesus because they said, look, I can believe for another day, so what's the point of me giving my life for this? And the little girl walked up, a little young lady, less than a teenager, and she stands there over that picture, and she says, I refuse, I refuse to spit on my Savior and my Lord, and they shot her dead right there in the street. But guess what happened? Every Christian that followed after her refused to spit on that picture. Every... Christian that followed her refused to recant their faith in front of everyone. And one by one, they gave their lives and went out into eternity. What if you were in that line today, friend? What if that was you? Now, look, you say, well, I'm not ready, Pastor. I just, you know, you're, this is heavy. And I know it's heavy. It's, it's heavy. But what's the alternative? Continuing to live a life that I'm in control most of the time and the Lord has control part of the time? What's the alternative? God gets 50 and I get 50? Or am I ready to say, Lord, Christ Jesus, rule my life. Rule my life. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you, Lord. Every minute, I need you. I thank you, God, 
that this is available to anyone who would believe today. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me if you would. Hallelujah. Just go ahead and bow your heads with me for a moment. Lord Jesus, I believe by your Holy Spirit that you're t talking to us here today. Lord, that you, that this book of Ephesians is so relevant to our world today. And Lord, I pray this morning for, for anyone who might be at that point of decision where they're ready to say, I'm in, I'm in, Lord, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm all in. I'm done trying to guide this, lead this, make this happen. And I just surrender. I'm done trying to follow a subjective will in my life where I just determine what, how this should play out. And I am ready to turn to you and say, Lord, your principled will is my will. Your will is my will, Lord. You and I will have discussions about anything, any decisions I make in my life, the direction my life is going. And I trust in you today. You know, this morning, if you're here and you're or online with us and you would say, Pastor, look, my life, I, I really, I, I believe, but, you know, I've, you may have been a churchgoer all your life, but I, I'm just really not at a place in my life right now that, that I recognize that I'm not, I just haven't surrendered to the Lord. I just haven't surrendered my life to him, his lordship. If I was in that line and there was a picture out there, I would really, really struggle with whether I'd actually stand up for Jesus. Now, gratefully, most of us will probably never have to face that in our lives. But we should at least be willing to stand for Jesus. So I'm going to ask while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you'd say, Pastor, look, I'm today, I really feel the Holy Spirit pushing me and guiding me to just say to the Lord Jesus, you are Lord of my life. I surrender to you today. And if that's you I'm talking to, I just want you to slip a hand up in the air with me right now, all over the building. We're going to pray in just a moment, but thank you over here. Thank you. Anyone else here today would say, that's me. Thank you. Join these two here today. If you're ready to just say three, amen. Anyone else here today would say, that's me. Look, four, thank you. Uh, is there anyone else that would say that today? I'm ready. You know, you know your life. You know who's in charge. Is Jesus? It's time to let him be in charge. Is there anyone else here today to join me and say, look, I'm ready to pray that. I'm ready to pray and make that happen in my life today. Amen. All over the building. Thank you. What do we say? Three, four, three? Did I say three? Amen. Everybody look up at me. Say this out loud with me. Jesus is Lord. Say it with me again. Jesus is Lord. Say it like this. Jesus is my Lord. My Lord. Don't get ahead of me now. Jesus is my Lord. Before you leave here today, I want you to tell at least three people, Jesus is my Lord. We know what that means here now this morning. So I want you to just go around and tell three people before you leave here, God bless you. Have an awesome day. We'll see you at Thirsty Thursday.